this is it. We're capping, we're, we're sticking a fork in season one. We dig deep, it's log form conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, educators, and people that are just doing cool stuff. Interesting, doing important work. This is Rust Belt Startup. So, uh, so today, this is this is actually um, uh, an interview that I've been holding onto for a while, but um, wanted to share it with you guys. I got to 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 meet and hang out with a, a really in- incredible woman um, who got Montesinos. She's from uh, originally from Miami. Actually, originally I think from Hawaii, then lived in Miami, and now she's going back to Hawaii. And she is um, someone who spent some time in our neck of the woods over the summer uh, doing some work with us and she is the founder of Dysfunction Magazine which is way more than a magazine it started as a magazine it's still a magazine but she's grown this community uh, this online community um, to bleed over into a very very robust uh, social media presence her uh, her dysfunction account on Instagram I think just crossed over a quarter million followers, uh, but she's also been able to really do a lot of, of consulting uh, around brand building and storytelling and social media, um, and she's got a lot of great tips on, on on where do you start, what do you do, how do you do this, how do you navigate all of this digital stuff, and uh, she's been doing it with you know, basically by herself and, and or with a small team, and uh, I think it's this conversation is going to be incredibly useful uh, to you guys. It's something that we did live. This was actually a, a, a live uh, event that we did back in, man, I think late summer uh, in Utica, New York. And it was a conversation with myself and Huguette in front of a audience of about 40 people. So uh, I did my best to bring in the Q&A. There was a lot of good Q&A uh, in this conversation. And, uh, and and if you hear me interject, if there's some edit points, it's because maybe that question didn't come through. I'm going to rephrase it for you because the answers are good. And so we're going to, we're going to stop uh, Season 1 Rust Belt Startup with this live interview with Huguette Montesinos. How did, what, first of all, for people that don't know what Dysfunction Magazine is, what is, what is Dysfunction Magazine? Sure. So uh, Dysfunction actually started with the leg of the magazine. It was always intended to be a women's movement, a counterculture movement. So um, in an era where most of the magazines and publications I used to pick up uh, really told women how to be skinny like that girl, how to dress like that girl, how to make it big like that person, there wasn't anything that really made me feel like I was okay being me or like I could make it being just me. And so there was a really big conflict uh, for me in that time. And so I also found that I was very interested in things like culture and art and fashion, but found that to be very empty and superficial. So then I also really kind of connected with the psychology of things and women's issues and social justice. And so that's kind of how the magazine started to come about. And as I was finishing my master's degree in Spanish literature, which had nothing to do with it, I would take sort of my study breaks and always browse through these magazines and kind of visualize and fantasize what this magazine could look like. So it started off as a seed of the magazine being the beginning of a, of a larger movement. So. Right now, it's developed into a much larger umbrella brand, which is Magazine, 
we have the courses element, we have our philanthropy and sort of outreach, um, and we had an online store, which still continues, and at some point we were kind of like the Bohemian Etsy. So we had all these multi-vendors, and we were sort of doing drop shipping. We kind of dropped that a little bit and sort of reduced it into just our own products because we saw that they had a pretty um, large interest in just the things that we were publishing. And so um, there's also the development now of a podcast coming up. So it's sort of a multi-level or multimedia um, movement for women and to just exhort women towards a higher standard of living while understanding that that already lives within themselves. So, Why did you decide that at the time a magazine was the, the, the method or the medium to get you to where you wanted, or the, the starting point? Because, I mean, a lot, you know, I think it, when was this? What year was this? Oh, this was like seven years ago now, okay. and it was definitely during a recession, and yeah. a lot of major magazines and even publications under Condé Nast were, were folding. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a very peculiar time. Or shrinking time. considerably. Completely, yeah, it was a very peculiar time, but um, it was also a time when websites weren't that big of a thing and blogs weren't either. I think looking back on it, if I would have started it now, I would have started a digital platform first, and then maybe expanded and who knows maybe I would have gotten intimidated and never done the physical one I don't know but I feel like I had to work backwards so at that point it was building something physical to then evolve into the digital aspect which wasn't as, as accessible as it is today but so did you know anything about publishing a magazine zero I am the most unqualified person to do anything okay. that I do in my life so let's start there so yeah. how does one publish a magazine um, okay, so I'm going to be very raw and honest. I know, Stacy, please don't hate me. Um, Stacy's all about sustainability and l- supporting local. I started printing in China um, because I had $1,000 to my name and basically said I want to carry this vision out. And I had absolutely no clue what I was doing or how I was even going to go about it. But I knew that I couldn't eat a sandwich in one gulp. I had to do it in bite sizes. So the way that I started that was... I created a mock-up of what the magazine could look like. This was also during the era of Craigslist, and so that's the way I found all of my collaborators and contributors. And so we are looking for a local writer or for whatever it was, you know, so I would put these posts out and it was all on a collaboration, like free trade basis. And so I created the mock-up, basically Googled where I can print this in China, got a couple of quotes, um, got a little bit, you know, a couple of copies produced with the thousand dollars I had. Literally once I had a box of magazines in my hand, walked into Barnes and Noble and said, how can I get this in your stands? And so from there, they gave me this whole list of how that works and who I had to contact. They basically went through the review process. So everything was a very grassroots sort of go step by step and ask as you go. That was legitimately and still till this day, anything that I embark on that I have no clue on. I'm not a huge researcher per se. So I just ask a lot of people. I don't sit there like on the internet researching things. I just ask people who might know someone because I feel like I understand from people a little bit more than I do from technology as a whole. So when you went to Barnes and Noble to, to get it on, on the on the shelves, um, you know, what, how, how I guess let me back up. The process of going from who gets idea to issue one. What's the time period of that? Because I think a lot of people think that this stuff happens. This isn't a weekend project. Oh no, or a week no. project. So what was what was the time span? I think the time span was about six months okay. um, from the time that I created the first idea. Now I'm also really good at minimizing the amount of time that I think something's going to take. So I'll assume it's going to take, you know, three months. It ends up taking a year. Mm -hmm. And so on average, that's kind of how it works for me. So I assumed that this was going to be like 
you know, maybe a week or two to just kind of get the thing and the prototype. Mind you, I have never in my life even taken a graphic design course until this day I was designing cover to cover of the magazine. So I self-taught uh, Photoshop. I was designed for any, anyone here know like graphic design? Anybody here? Techie? Okay. So you would know what a sin it is to design an entire magazine on Photoshop. There is, okay. So you guys get it. Okay. There's such a thing called InDesign, which is a program for designing magazines. And I was basically using Photoshop to design page one through 160. So you can imagine what a nightmare that was. Um, but I didn't know any better. And I was very afraid to learn new, new programs because that was just not my thing. So, um, so it ended up being about a six month process from designing what I thought it would look like to actually designing the pages once I knew how many pages I was going to allot to the thing to then, but then there was also the process of getting it printed in China and getting it shipped back. Mm -hmm. So that was about an extra two to three months. So you can add that to the six months. Yeah. So maybe close so to not, a year. So you weren't doing time sensitive content necessarily? No. So that was always yeah. part of the vision of dysfunction was that it would never be time sensitive. It would, it would be sort of like a perpetual, you know, content base that people can come into five years it's from evergreen. now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how'd you, how did you sell? What was the business model? Was it selling ads traditionally at the, at the beginning? How did you get your first customers? <laughs> I call that chicken without a head uh, era. Yeah, so I was just basically running around looking. I didn't have any experience in sales or marketing or advertising, and much less did the uh, mom and pop advertisers that I used to work with at the time. So yes, magazines and newspapers. As you can tell, there's like free newspapers everywhere and magazines that cost like two to three dollars. Reason being that publishers don't make money off of really the, the actual sale. They make it mostly off advertisers. So at that point, I didn't have enough um, time span or enough credibility as a magazine to get any major advertisers. So it was really mostly based on mom and pop businesses of which I had to sit there and be like, this is what I have and this is why you should advertise. And this is, so it was a very painful process. It was like pulling teeth for me, but there was nobody else that could do it and nobody else that knew it as well as I did. So then what did that, what are those first sales calls look or sound like? Because you're walking in there with a thing that doesn't exist with an audience that doesn't exist, with a pro, you know uh, an ad base that doesn't exist, with data that doesn't exist, and you're like, hey, can I have some money yep. to advertise in this? <laughs> so how, I mean, how do you how do you have that conversation? What does that conversation sound like, or what did it sound like? Okay, so pre meetings there was a lot of get down on your knees and pray, okay. right? So that was the first part. <laughs> that that is a undeniable part of this entire journey because everything has been completely out of my pay grade. Um, so if there was any at all, um, but it was really, it came down to, well, I do have to say, having lived in Hawaii at that time and kind of growing the spaces from Hawaii, Hawaii is, I mean, I guess Utica would relate to it in that sense where if Utica's something- Utica's not like Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> all right, you guys don't have the beaches, but let's say if something pops up right now, everybody would know about it, right? Like if one store, one coffee shop pops up, pretty much everybody would know. It's yeah. like the talk of the town. So the, the advantage that I did have in Hawaii at that time, and which all you guys probably have, is that when there was a new magazine popping up, obviously everybody knew and everybody wanted to be involved. So the majority of my collaborators were local. So it was like a lot of word of mouth. And actually with Within the first issue, we completely sold out. Awesome. So that was great, and it was entirely locally supported. <laughs> so that was a really great advantage to it. And so there was a little bit of buzz around it already, but it was still difficult because, uh, you know, Hawaii mentality is, is not so much marketing. It's really more community and word of mouth. So they didn't feel the need to advertise, really. Um, so it wasn't easy. I mean, it was just me going and waking up every day and being like, 
all right, I got to do this and just continuing to do it and continuing to do it. But I did find enough funding to do the first three to four issues and, you know, not have a really difficult time. So where'd that funding come from? Like when you say funding, was it advertising revenue? Or was it like you had, you got investment? That no, it, I've never had an investor. Awesome. So it was entirely, uh, you know, community funded through like mom and pop advertisers. The good thing is because I only started with a thousand magazine, my investment, my investment wasn't that huge. Right. So I would try to, you know, do little things as much as I could. And in fact, Sometimes I would use other services in exchange for, you know, the, the advertisement sure. money that I would need. So I was very resourceful and very creative at that time. So whatever I could, whatever strings I couldn't pull, I would kind of use another ability or like another talent to be able to make ends meet when it came to publishing. So issue one is in, it's in Hawaii, but where in Hawaii? So um, you mean like where it was distributed? So you, ha you, have, you have issue one was in... Was it like a Barnes and Noble or like where, like where could you get this? Yeah. So in Hawaii, well, on Oahu, which is the island that I've lived on, it, there's only two Barnes and Noble. Okay. So it was pretty easy, you know, challenge there. So I got it into. So you got it in every Barnes and Noble on the. Uh, well, so after. Right. <laughs> I got it in every single Barnes and Noble in Hawaii. It was amazing. The but entire state. Entire state. It was insane. That's right. There, the, there's no Barnes and Noble on the other islands either. So <laughs> it, 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 the entire state legitimately. But no, it was really interesting because after about a year of publishing, which at the time we were publishing four issues a year, um, the magazine manager was like, have you ever considered going national or international? And of course, that was always in my heart, but I didn't think that would happen for numerous years. And he was like, well, this is what you would have to do and you know, submit a proposal to uh, a national distributor. So I'm thinking, all right, I could probably afford maybe a couple extra copies for like Miami, New York, LA. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, just like a couple big cities. Well, I submitted the proposal and they got back to me and we're like, we want to distribute it all over the US. And that was another drop on my knee, start crying and freak out because I had no idea what the heck I was going to do. What does that mean though? We wanted to, so how does distribution work? Does that mean that you front all the costs and they distribute it? Does that mean they print it? Does that mean they sell it? How, what's that? model even look like? Yeah. So they don't fund the printing. So you have to come up with that on your own. And then once you've printed the issues, they basically just take a cut or a commission off of the sales. Okay. So anything that doesn't sell, they cut it, they throw it away. I know you'd hate this too. It's terrible. Um, but they basically throw it away and then whatever does sell, they always give you the reports and they show you exactly what sells. And so the distributor takes a cut and the store takes a cut. So you end up making a little less than 50% of the sales price. Okay. Cool. But you still have to. So what is look going from, you know, Hawaii, a thousand units to what is what is what is national distribution? Like, what do you have to come up with? Um, it really varies. Um, on average for us, it's between 50 and 70 K uh, per run. But it really varies. I mean, you can actually start with very small runs. You don't have to have more than like three or four thousand magazines to okay. actually distribute nationally. They would just kind of choose the areas. And what the a national distributor does is it knows your markets. So it basically tests a couple of different locations and they place you in the best placements so in the best location. So you're always selling. Cool. Yeah. So what did that do? How did that change your day to day or the way that the business runs? Was that night and day? Was that? Oh my goodness. That was actually, so the, the business model and the way that we would run didn't change, but now the pressure of financially coming up with the money to print did change. What I did have to do is I always had to stay true to what I could do. And as we were talking earlier, I never did the fake it till you make it. It was very transparent. This is where I'm at. I cover myself to where the blanket allows. So what I did was say, Hey, you know what? I can only produce 5,000 right now. Is that okay? Can we still, you know, distribute nationally? And so I grew little by little and in the bite sizes, that I mentioned. So I went to like 5,000 and kept growing and growing until the point where I had built up enough credibility and was growing my advertiser base and was able to produce more. And then you're hunting nationals at that point, national ads. National right? ads. Oh yeah. 
and is, but you can't just walk in and go, hey, body glove, you know, right. can I can I have an ad? How, how do you even go about approaching that scale or accessing those dollars? Yeah. So you know, I think that's one of the points where collaboration comes in because. There hasn't ever been some kind of work relationship that hasn't happened somewhat serendipitously through a collaborative relationship that I already have. Or, you know, sometimes you just kind of cast the net, you know, and just like send out a couple emails. So I have had that relationship with a couple of brands um, where I truly just love them. And I'm mm -hmm. like, hey, I love this product. And I would just naturally feel like it's a good fit. And naturally, they feel the same way. But with a company like Body Glove, um, you know, I did have a friend of a friend who like reached out to them and was like, oh, I work with so-and-so who works with so-and-so. And so like a lot of these relationships happen through collaborations with other people, which is why I can't emphasize the importance of collaboration. And so that not only helped me build pillars and mind you these are not influential people by any means so it's not like I run in like some kind of special circles these are just friends who just happen to be the cousin of somebody who went on vacation with the owner of body glove basically but then aside from that that's also been the key to my growth. So part of the magazine or any product, service, or content that you have, it's really people knowing that you exist and people knowing that this is that it's visible and that people are get that your your stuff is getting out there. And so a big part of that is collaborating with other people and other people's audiences. So a lot of times, the the, the fascinating for a lot of people now is is Instagram, right? Sure. So like, oh, you're growing is is you know your audience is huge and you're growing and this and that. Well, a lot of that has been partnering with other people mm. who are in my niche, who are in my tribe, and we basically share audience. And so I cannot emphasize the importance of the way collaboration has opened so many doors. Can, can we talk about Instagram for a little bit? Because I know people are, I'm sure that's, by the way, at any point you can be like, hey, shut up. I have a question. You don't have to do this at yeah. the end. <laughs> and usually this, this ha so please, I'm encouraging that. Yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> you Tier. Is that her name? Tier. Oh, the, the lawyer? Oh, Tyre. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Stacy can get that for you, or we can get that for you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I want to hang out with her too, by the way. Other questions? So. How do you partner with other people in your niche? Um, so there's numerous ways to partner. I mean, nowadays, thanks to Instagram, you can actually just message people directly and be like, hey, I really like your content. You know, we have something similar. So there's different ways that you can actually collaborate or partner with them. Sometimes you can host webinars together. Sometimes you can do giveaways together. And so there's numerous things, depending on the brand that you have and what your offering is, there's different things that would make sense to you. So for example, whenever I'm doing courses, obviously I want emails, right? I want people to give me their contact information so I can add a lot of value and then sell my product. So in those cases, things like webinars, like joint webinars with other people who have similar interests or doing giveaways. But instead of doing giveaways for people to follow me on Instagram, I do giveaways for them to have to click on a link to put in their email. Because actually, believe it or not, for many of you guys who have taken the course, um, you know, we, we feel that audience growth on Instagram is really what we're aiming for, when realistically, you don't have control over Instagram, you don't own any of those followers. So I had to learn the hard way that that didn't necessarily equal popular, the popularity didn't equal profitability. So a lot of the times I was trying to build this audience so badly and then I was completely um, neglecting my email growth. And so that's actually where I've seen the majority of my sales and the majority of my growth in anything that I do. I can promote something on Instagram and about two to 3% of my audience sees it. However, I send an email out and about 30 to 40 percent of my audience sees it so I end up selling way more anything that I promote when I do it on email so I really want to encourage everybody to be building an email list as much as you think it's archaic because I used to think it was irrelevant yeah I was just gonna base off that do you have age demographics at all um, I'm just curious because I hate email yeah and avoid it 
as much as I can. But my yeah. Instagram, I'm there right. all the time. So. Absolutely. So yes, my demographic particularly is, it's kind of broad. It's like 18 to 36, so it's actually a pretty large audience. But um, even if you hate email, you still check it, right? Okay. And there's, a, there's probably a few brands or a few people, a few, few influential people that maybe you open up their emails all the time. Right. Probably. Okay. So if that, if that could be you and you could be that person for somebody else, yeah. you're automatically going to sell them something. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see your point. So, okay. and part of that, which I was telling Ryan is you're growing an audience, not just their email, but you're serving them a lot. Okay. So part of the reason you open certain emails from certain people is because they always add value to you, to your life, to your business or something that you're trying to accomplish. So that's the key to great marketing is it's not just sending an email blast and being like, here's what's going on this week. Unless you're a thinkubator because you want to know what's going on here. But other than that, you want to always add value to people. And so whatever you're selling, even if you're selling, and I, you know, we did this in the webinar with Stacy. Um, if you if you're selling handbags for, you know, busy moms or whatnot, I might be selling this handbag, but I'm not going to pitch you the handbag in every email. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you three emails in which I'm giving you tips to how to be how to go on the run. I'm going to give you tips on how to make quick meals if you're a busy mom. And so everything that I send you has nothing to do with my product. It's just entirely adding value. So when I pitch you my bag after four, after the third or fourth email, you're going to be like. Oh, that's cool. But now you're listening to me because you trust me and because I've become an authority in your interest group. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of how the email marketing works. Yes. For email, so I was originally using MailChimp, but um, MailChimp does have one issue that I need for selling courses and anything that I want to do, which is segmentation. So MailChimp, you can send out to different lists, but for example, it doesn't have if-then statements. So for example, if I if I have a webinar and I want you to watch the webinar, then the email pro uh, email service provider would be able to tell you this person watched it, this person didn't. So if this person didn't, they get a replay or they get the sales pitch. So um, I think. What it is is that MailChimp isn't as sophisticated in segmenting people, almost like in these little funnels, versus now I use ConvertKit. And so ConvertKit still has its little things. I mean, Stacy and I are always talking about how we just wish that one of them would have everything we're looking for. But um, typically ConvertKit and Infusionsoft are the two sort of best softwares for the segmentation, but Infusionsoft is way more expensive. So if you're just wanting to start off, I would say start with MailChimp, unless you're actually needing to do the segmentation. If not, then I would say go over to ConvertKit. Yeah, do you know what I mean by segmentation? Not really? Okay, I'll make that a little more clear. So for example, in my case, since I have a digital product, which is content-based like the courses, right? So one of the ways that I sell the courses is offering a free online class. So if I'm teaching about Instagram, I'm going to do one free webinar where if you, in order for you to sign up for it, you have to put in your email address. Now, once you watch it, that, um, that server with which I do the courses tells me who watched it and who didn't. So from there, you guys, those who watched it and those who didn't are going to get different emails. The ones who watched it, there's some that bought and some that didn't buy, right? So they're going to get different emails. And those that didn't watch it are going to get a replay. So you see how it all stems, and then people have to get different emails. So to segment all that, you need something a little more sophisticated, and Mailchimp doesn't do that yet. So that's why I use ConvertKit. Does that make sense a little more? Okay. And, cool. And on that too, Christine, just that—that that also means when you treat this out, because you guys shown me kind of how like, this thing goes. <laughs> you're writing a ton of email, so yeah. you know, and you were developing. It was like. 40 different emails like this person <sighs> watched the webinar, but they didn't do this thing and this but they but they did this and so everything 
trickles down. So yeah. it's, it's anticipating all of the different paths a customer could take and then creating this value chain for them. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And all you gauge, yeah, all you gauge through Mailchimp is like who opened and who didn't and who clicked and who didn't. That's the only thing you can measure. Versus the other one tells you all the other things and you can manipulate all the information as to who gets what. Another key to the collaborations that I've made over the years has been that I've always been very transparent about where I'm at and what scope or what realm I'm in, whether it's follower base, whether it's financial you know, revenue scope or whatever it may be. I've always been very transparent about that. So for example, if I get together with other entrepreneurs, whether they have a smaller audience or a smaller you know, financial income, whatever it may be, or higher, I always very much tell them, oh, this is what I'm struggling with or this is where I'm at. And immediately, like you might be at dinner or at coffee with somebody and all of a sudden they're like, oh, me too. Oh my gosh, what about this? You know, and so all of a sudden you have this very intimate connection with people. You're able to create real friendships and really help each other out because you understand what they're, lack, what they're lacking, what you're lacking, and you can really complement each other in that way. I actually think sometimes there's a bit of ambiguity. I think there's obviously a superficial assumption by looking at someone's Instagram or by looking at someone's website or looking at things like that. So you can make superficial assumptions, but that's why I say that it doesn't matter what my assumption is or what level that person is. I am on one playing field and that is the honesty transparent and just being real with who I am where I'm at and what I'm trying to get to so I decided I don't care how many different products I have or how in fact I transitioned the Instagram from being a magazine Instagram to being more of a personal brand because I, I realized that the more I make it personal and I know a lot of people struggle with this because they're like oh it's more about the brand it's about the product not me well people follow the man before they do the movement so a really big thing for me was getting people to know and understand who I am and what my heart is and then if they understand and they trust me, as we were saying, even with the email, is I'm, I'm building a story around who I am, and I'm building a story around the things that I, that, I, that I know and that I want to teach and that I want to give. And so once I've built that, it doesn't matter what I sell. If they like my aesthetic and they like my overall message, people are interested in my products regardless of what they are. Granted, not every product's going to be for everybody. If you're not an entrepreneur, you don't care about the Instagram abundance. you know. And if you're an entrepreneur, you might not care about fashion and lifestyle. So it just depends. I mean, I understand that not everything is for everyone. And so when it comes to Instagram, I'm okay with some posts like for example my style posts like do incredible in terms of likes and then my personal life ones when I talk about my marriage and about my struggles they do really poorly in terms of likes but then I get this crazy amount of comments with people like oh my gosh me too you know so there's something for everyone so I just treat it as one large playing field because at the end it's one brand and it's around me and who I am so I decided to make that shift and it's less overwhelming and I don't have to question everything that I post I just decided once again being authentic to who I am I'm a multifaceted person as we all are there's no reason why people should get overwhelmed by the amount of content that's in there much like if you sat down with somebody they wouldn't be overwhelmed by being like oh you're a mom and your wife and you have a business and you like to dress like people would never freak out about that right so we just for some reason psychologically we think that it would freak people out in on an Instagram platform which it wouldn't so that's the first part I do use just one Instagram and then when it comes to my email service and the way that I segment that we're actually in a process of doing that because when we switch from MailChimp to ConvertKit, we've actually, um, ConvertKit has something called tags, which allows people to segment based on interest groups. So what we've done so far is we have emailed everyone on our main list because on MailChimp, we just had one main list. So here, what we did is we sent one massive email saying, hey guys, this is what I'll be doing now. These are some of the topics of interest that I'll be sharing. Click everything that applies. Or the, with the first thing that we did was with the Instagram one, we said, if you don't want to hear anything about Instagram, click here. 
And so we've been able to kind of start segmenting, although we haven't done it as fully as we want to yet, but we're working on that. So once you have a sophisticated system like ConvertKit or Infusionsoft, you can very easily be like, this just goes out to people who are interested in the magazine. This is just for people interested in entrepreneurship. This is just for people who are interested in my coaching. So you can kind of gauge that through your email server. Yeah. Yeah. cost. So it's all based on um, brackets of email lists, of emails that you actually have. So right now, I'm, we have a mailing list of what, like close to 20K? Some, yeah, some, oh, like 25K. And we're paying approximately $160 a month. So, but you know, if you have a list of 100, 200, even 1,000, I mean, I started paying at MailChimp. I, I went from free to $20 to $50. And so you scale them. MailChimp and ConvertKit are actually relatively similar. I think ConvertKit might be like $10 a month more. But yeah, it just depends on your email list. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Thanks well, for bringing that up. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Have we not? <laughs> okay. What is oh, okay. the GDPR? So the GDPR is basically the law that protects Europeans, anyone in Europe, from receiving like spam emails and anything that they don't want to be receiving, right? So this was all like sprung up on us. Well, maybe not overnight, but that's how it felt. Um, so I can't take full credit for that. That was like 100% Stacy and Ryan hooking us up with some extra information. Yeah, she became a lawyer overnight working with um, Taid. Tair. Yes. So that was very helpful. So see what I mean? Like even these relationships have helped so much in like molding my business and things that I know nothing about. So that's why friendships are great. Um, but it was it was definitely kind of like random. What the hell do we do? So essentially it was like creating some kind of like policy like you do with your your general policies that you, as long as you have that thing on your page, it could Yes. I think the big challenge was just making sure that we knew who was in Europe because going from MailChimp to ConvertKit, MailChimp didn't give us much information about that. And we literally transferred the week of GDPR. So it was a, oh my gosh, it was such a freaking nightmare. So we transferred during that week. And so all of a sudden when we put them in ConvertKit, thankfully ConvertKit's a little more sophisticated in that. So it was able to tell us who was Europe and we were able to pull them out. Still a couple kind of bled in there, but we've been slowly. Yes, yes. It's huge. It gives you so much data. So much. I think it's worth the $10, $20 extra a month, 100%. Yeah. So for the publishing company, we have a few Facebook groups. Yes. And we have Instagram page. Sure. So Facebook has actually changed a lot, and the platform is really a little bit more interactive when it comes to groups and when it comes to article shares. So Instagram is a lot more visual, so it depends on the type of content that you're sharing. I would actually suggest sharing different types of content in the different platforms because they don't operate the same way. The psychology behind them isn't the same way, and the algorithm behind them isn't the same way anymore. So um, when it comes to Facebook, I would say if you can create a group of some sort, when it comes not just like a fan page, but like a group where you're interacting with people, where you're asking questions where you're creating a community of people like kind of sharing based on whatever interest group your your magazine or your publish uh, your publication will be and then when it comes to Instagram it's a lot more visual so it's kind of like that instant gratification it's the creator of Instagram literally calls it visual crack so that is essentially what you're working with so you need it needs to be like instant you know gratification when it comes to the visuals but you also need to be aware of the two viewing formats which is the grid and then sort of the the, the sliding where you see like one post at a time so I would say pay attention to both visual 
tools and content, I would invest the majority of your time on Instagram right now. But once you build your audience on Instagram, I would really suggest trying to get them out of Instagram. So like out of your social media platforms. Because remember, you don't own Instagram or Facebook. The only thing you have control over is your email list, how often you're gonna send it to them, how quickly they're gonna respond and see your content versus the algorithms are really screwing with the way people receive content now. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yes. You said that your um, your career is mostly based on collaboration. Can you talk more about how you uh, collaborate with people, how you approach collaboration? What are the biggest challenges in collaborating? Sure. Um, so there are. Oh, such a wide array of collaborations that I've done. So there's like the celebrity collaborations. Those always help because anytime a celebrity posts something, then obviously your audience grows. Um, there's collaborations of giveaways with different brands. There's collaborations of um, just trade promotion. So like if I like something of theirs and I really want it, then like they send me the product and then I build their, I help build their audience. So there's numerous forms of collaborations. I will say, as I said earlier, a lot of it sometimes is just casting the net. You know, it's just writing the email. It's just like really risking something. Is it cold email or warm email? It's usually cold email. Um, when it's warm, there's actually both. By the way, does anyone, does everybody know what cold and warm uh, audiences are? Okay, so a cold audience is basically someone you've never had contact with. And then a warm email or a warm uh, message is basically somebody you have a relationship with already or they know of you. Um, so it's both. So honestly, a lot of warm collaborations have happened through Instagram with just like direct messaging, sometimes an email with like a brand that's liked something of mine and I know that they're aware that I exist, so I write something to them, but there's a lot of cold ones. So for example, the first year that we went national, so our first, uh, our first issue of going national, I remember being in Miami at the time and then I found out that I know I'm not super proud right now, but um, that like the new Kardashian show was happening, like the Courtney and Chloe take Miami. So I was like, they're in Miami. Oh my gosh, I'm just gonna like reach out. So I like found out the marketing person in E Entertainment and just like wrote them an email and just like made it really juicy. And they responded and they're like, sure, we'd love for them to be on your cover. And it was like our first issue ever being national. Of course, I pitched it like, oh, we're now a national magazine, blah, 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 you know? And so like sometimes it's just casting the net. You never know what you're gonna catch. So I would just say, do not be afraid of just like overextending yourself enough to reach out to people. You don't always need to have a relationship with them. You can definitely test and, and try different things, but the more you can build relationships and the more you can see how you can collaborate with other people, I think it's a very strong um, combination of the two. You got, can you talk, uh, you guys did a collaboration where you did a trip, yeah. right? Is, was that a good collaboration, a bad collaboration? That's something that, you know, it wasn't just dysfunction doing this, right? But what did that, what was that process like and what was the yield on something like that? Sure, so we've actually done a few of those. Um, one of them was with the Tahiti Tourism Board. So we ended up going to Tahiti, but that once again was through a relationship. So there was this one photographer that had been reaching out and mind you, this is gonna be key number one, just be nice to everyone. It doesn't hurt to be nice, you know? And it doesn't matter where you are on your journey or you know, on the playing field, always just be nice to people. Um, because you always need to remember where you were at when you started so it doesn't matter it's still another human on the other side of the screen whether it's the phone or the computer or whatever it is so I actually remember this photographer writing and saying hey I'd really love to shoot with you guys or shoot for you guys and there wasn't really like a like a direct intersection because he was in LA I wasn't going to LA anytime soon and I liked his work but it wasn't like my favorite but I was just like hey love I sure I'd love to do that sometime if you're ever in Miami let me know or maybe we can collaborate on something in the future I didn't close the door I didn't say no and I didn't ignore him but you know, I definitely got back to him. And turns out he worked with Tahiti Tourism Board 
for like three years and was like, hey, so I'm putting together this photo shoot, you know, I'm putting together something that I do for them, would you be interested in coming? And they have a budget, and they'd be willing to fly your celebrity. So we were like, okay, so then we pitched that to a PR agency that we work with a lot. Turns out they paid for Carmen Electra for our entire team. Everybody stayed in their own bungalow. We enjoyed Tahiti to no end, and this was somebody I'd never worked with before. And just through like being nice to him and him pitching the idea one day, it all just happened. So things like that happen all the time through just being kind to people and being open to new ideas. Even if you can't, sometimes it's you don't have a space or a place for a certain collaboration at the moment. I would say put that in your little cabinet or just be like, hey, you know, maybe it'll open up at some other time. Don't just shut the door. Don't ignore people. You know, that's a really huge part of having that social etiquette when it comes to internet uh, you know, just the internet etiquette is how I would say. So, yeah, it's, I mean, that was one of them. There's, I mean, there's a few things that we've done with like Guatemala and Peru. Um, some of them have been through retreats. So you also need to know what's in scope for you. So overextending yourself to the point where you're actually losing out on time, money, energy is just not a good exchange, right? So it's being realistic with what's in scope for you. So there's times when I've been invited to retreats and they're like, hey, you're welcome to come. And I'm like, okay, cool. But they're willing to give me the entrance to the retreat. And I'm like, okay, well, that would still be an expense for me to fly, to get a hotel, to do whatever I have to do. Is that a proper exchange for me? Probably not. I'm taking a week off of my work to come to their retreat, to speak at their retreat for in exchange for an entrance to the retreat. Probably not a good ex exchange. So then what I'll do is I'll say, well, you know, if you can cover this and this and that. And so sometimes it's just asking the extra question. It doesn't mean, you know, knocking isn't entering. So it's like also being clear on what you need and being clear from the get-go, these are things I'm willing to do and things I'm not willing to do. These are things that are in scope with my time and my energy and my budget, and these are things that are not. And so being really clear with that stuff is always very important for me. And I've realized that the hard way as well as the years went by. So, um, Can we talk a little bit about, um, you've, you've invested in and you've alluded to in, in our conversations before today that you have a, a coach or a mentor and, and you've gone through several courses that have, have you know, I guess the, the overarching term would be a mastermind or something like that. Can you talk about what that experience has been like? Do you, do you recommend it? Do you not recommend that? And because sure. that's something I think a lot of people are asking about yeah. and I haven't been through it myself either. Yeah. Um, so as they say, therapists need therapists. So that's the first thing, right? Um, we all learn from somebody who's walking five to 10 steps ahead of us. So the first thing I would say is anytime that you have any kind of mentor or somebody who's like speaking life into you or your business, it's ideally choose people that are about two to five steps ahead of you, not 10 or 20. Because what ends up happening is when you're working with people that are way too ahead of you, you have a tendency to get completely overwhelmed and be like, I don't even know if I could ever reach that. So there's kind of this overwhelm that takes over and the sense of, I don't even know if I can do this. So like it, it's happened to me where I've felt like I cannot, you know, be mentored by this person or I cannot because I just don't even know if I could ever reach their level or it's just not my way of operating. So I did join a mastermind. Um, I feel like they are very magical experiences if you're with the right mentor and with the right leader who also has the same mindset and business culture that you want to create. So for example, I joined a mastermind that was around creating courses. Granted, the downfall was I had already taken a course on how to create a course and I had taken an, and had read an entire book on how to create a course. So I previously had all the knowledge before joining the mastermind. So by the time I went into it, I was like, 
$20,000 for the year on a mastermind. And I already know what, what's going on here. You know, like I had already created the course and I had already done. So I don't think that me stepping into that mastermind was the right time or the right mastermind. I did learn a lot of things about the way she does business that actually opened my eyes to a lot of things that I now understand are perfectly okay for me and my business culture, but I would definitely recommend it. And I do think that in the future, I will look into, you know, maybe joining another one or some kind of even closer, like one-on-one -on -one mentorship with somebody who's doing something that I want to do. Um, I do recommend it because I feel like walking into it blindly is one of the worst things you could do because you're wasting too much time and energy, which in turn is money too. So, um, if it wasn't, because, so for example, when I was going to create the course, I invested in a course that was $2,000. That was how to create a course. And I also invested in another course that was all about how to create copy around marketing. So there was always an investment, but I would say that you definitely need to learn from people who have walked before you. And if you can have that exchange in person, one-on-one, -on -one, even better. How did you figure out that that person spoke to you or that was the right mastermind? So there's a, I mean, every, it's like everybody's got a mastermind now, yeah, right? Every Everyone's a DJ and everyone's got a podcast. Everyone's got a mastermind. Yeah. So how do you find, how did you, with a sizable investment like that, how did you know that this was, this person spoke to me? Sure. So I've actually collaborated with her on a couple of giveaways before, and we had a circle of similar friends and two of my friends knew her personally and they had told me about her journey. And within a, in a, within a matter of, I think it was two or three years, she became a multimillionaire doing courses. So I knew she knew what she was talking about and I knew I, how she did things. She did things very grassroots, didn't have an office, worked out of her home and worked with two other girls that she had never met in her entire life. So I knew that this was the type of lifestyle that I wanted. I want to work from home or when I'm traveling. And so I knew she was exactly focusing on the business model that I was learning about. So I knew that all these pieces come together. Sometimes you want to join a mastermind and you think you know the person who's teaching or you know something about them, but it turns out not to be the truth. So I would say, do your research, make sure that you know the person who you're wanting to learn from or people who know them and can vouch for that. Um, so in that sense, I knew that it checked off a lot of um, points that I needed for her to be my coach. Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's a, is there a question? Sorry, question. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so nowadays, um, education has shifted a lot, obviously, from you know physical college to mini online courses because there's also so much that colleges don't teach up to date, like a lot of marketing things and whatnot. But really, this applies to any field and any service content or product offering, right? And so I'll share a little bit more about this. I feel very open about it because this is kind of the, the source which I've learned from. There's a guy named Jeff Walker who's written a book called Launch. And so it's all about how to launch any kind of product, whether it's digital or physical. And so if you're teaching chemistry or if you're teaching biology, there are ways that you can build courses that are going to edify someone's life. So now the thing about these courses is that by the end of the course, they should accomplish something actionable right away. So for example, you wouldn't teach biology 101 because once you, once you learn that, you can't do anything immediately right after that, right? So the, the, the basis for these courses is that they should have some kind of actionable um, increase in the person's life right away. So the first one I launched was the Instagram course. Mind you, you can learn Instagram from so many different places nowadays and read all kinds of things upon it. But I've built a certain audience, I've built a certain following, and I've learned a lot of things from 
failures as well as successes. And so I wanted to kind of test the subject matter or the, the courses by teaching on a subject matter that I wasn't so, so attached to, but I just happened to know a lot about. And so the way that you build a course, there, there are several online platforms like Teachable. There's one called teachable.com, which you can actually host your courses. And they could basically be video courses of you speaking into the camera. In my case, when I did the Instagram Abundance one, it was with slides. And so the slides are going on and you're just like visually, you're, you're speaking as the visuals are going on. So you can teach on pretty much any subject matter. But the point is that when you're serving, the, there are two main points to successful course launches. The first one is adding value to your, well, three points. The first one is building a strong audience. And by strong audience, that doesn't mean you need to have thousands. That just means to have a strong email list. Right? The second one is to serve your audience as much as you can. So every time that you serve your audience fully, by the time you do the ask or by the time you offer, they're willing to buy because once again, you've served them in such a strong way. And then the third one is to have something that is gonna be actionable at the end of the course. So those are the three requirements to have a really successful launch of any kind. So I hope that answers your question. There's so much to that loaded question because it's an entire process of what it looks like to build a course. But it's a course that lives online and that usually people pay a higher price point. Normally courses range between $70 to like $5,000. I mean, there are some $10,000 ones, but those are absurd. So yeah, to about like $5,000 on average, depending on the subject matter, the amount of content, and who your audience is. If you have a luxury audience, they might pay a whole lot for that. So it just really depends. But the really great thing about that is you, they could be evergreen. So once you build the course, it's on there. All you need to do is keep building your audience and keep reselling it and reselling it. So what we do is we do two launches a year. And so we keep building our email list and that, that work is done. I mean, granted, we're making some updates to it right now because it was the first time we launched it. But once you create it and it looks great and you're happy with it, unless you have to do any updates to content like Instagram, making changes all the time, all you need to do is just repitch that thing to your new audiences. And with a sophisticated email server, it tells you which people are new and have never heard your content. And so you're just pitching it to all these new people and generating money passively all the time. Does that make sense? You, you've talked to us a little bit about, you have, a, you have routines and rituals that are really important to you. And can you talk about maybe what, what some of those things are and how that serves not only your, you know, your, your lifestyle, your spirit, but the business as well? Absolutely. So I can't ever get away from the concept of spirituality being a huge pillar in my life and in my business. And I definitely don't think that I would have been able to endure certain challenges if it hadn't have been because there was a purpose behind what I was doing and because there was some kind of alignment with my spiritual life. So I actually have a morning ritual where every single day <laughs> I go to Starbucks um, because I like a drink there and it gets me out of the house. Since I work from home, I needed something that would get me to get dressed and get out of the house, right? So otherwise I would be in my pajamas and I don't work in my pajamas because I would just go to sleep. So I would need to get out of the house and so my routine ended up you know, becoming going to Starbucks, but every single morning, I do reading, I particularly uh, you know, read scripture, and so I'll do some reading and then I do journaling. So this is like a, a, a segment of about an hour to an hour and a half every single day. So I just put my little headphones on and I kind of get into this like spiritual state where I'm just like contemplating on what I'm reading, meditating on that, journaling on it. The way I would do it in the beginning when I couldn't read or couldn't concentrate, I'm a little ADD sometimes. So when I couldn't concentrate was I would just like sort of feel like I was writing letters to God and just like letting, like venting, almost like if it was my own diary. And I would vent about the struggles that I was having and all the things that I was unqualified to do and all the things that I couldn't really grasp and, and get my head around. So that's 
become like the cornerstone of my day. That's become pretty much the cornerstone of my daily practice. And then from there, I always like I start my day right after that. I go back home, start working, usually take a siesta. I am Hispanic. So I take <laughs> I take like a little 15 minute siesta right after lunch or right after eating. And then, you know, have like my second segment of the day. And then on average, I always need to exercise, you know, if it's like two, three, four times a week, um, doing something active, walking around, running Zumba, surfing when I'm in Costa Rica. But that's definitely been a really huge part of my everyday. And then something that I always do is I have something to look forward to at the end of every day. So sometimes, you know, depending on what's going on that week, um, there's always something. So whether I'm going to cuddle, you know, cuddle up with a book or something, or whether I'm going to go on a surfing session or whether I'm going, I always have something that I look forward to at the end of the day and in the morning. So that sandwiches my day really well. So the night before I'm excited about the next day rather than dreading it. And so I'm really excited about my morning routine. And then when I'm like midpoint throughout the day or like endish of the day, I'm really excited about what's next. And it's kind of like my reward system. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. yeah. Um, and then I guess the only other question, I mean, I've got a billion questions, but in the interest of time, um, any advice for people that are trying to, or struggle with, you know, you get in startup mode and, and you're in, in work and grow and work and grow. And I think you've done a, a great job of creating the life that you want as well as the business that you want. And was, which came first, you know, or how, or how did you navigate, how did, how do you get to that point? Did you have the end in mind? Did you know what the end point was or have you kind of figured out that along the way? I've definitely figured that out along the way. Um, I've learned a lot of hard, hard learned lessons throughout the journey. In the beginning, there was just, there's this mission that I have with my life. There's this purpose. And so the purpose was to really create this movement for women. Um, you know, once that movement started, then there was like, okay, I want to create this movement and make it sustainable. Cause like in the beginning, I wasn't thinking about making money. I was like, I just need to put this out into the world. So then once I started putting it out into the world, I was like, okay, now I need to eat. Um, so then I always had like these side jobs, whether it was like a full-time job to part-time job to freelance to then being like, okay, how do I make this a sustainable full-time job to then how do I continue to grow this? So it's been a progressive um, exchange of understanding what my values are per season. So, but in that process, I also got to a place of really heavy burnout at some point where I was doing so many things just because I could and not taking care of myself enough and just thinking that sky's the limit. So therefore I'm going to go to sleep at 11 o'clock every night once I come home from work and do all my extra stuff. And, and like, that was just like my every day. And I realized how much I was burning out and how much I was losing my passion and my vision and even my creativity for the thing that once made me come alive. And so I realized that then points of rest became my salvation. You know, it's like, oh, I can't wait to go to vacation. I can't wait to just like get away, even if it was for the weekend. So I realized I didn't want to always live as if I'm getting away from something, right? I wanted to live a life. We've all heard it that it feels like I don't have to take a vacation from. So I mean, that's still kind of a, a balance game sometimes, but I did realize, particularly as this year was starting, one of the things that I value a lot is travel. And so if you wrote down a list of all the things that you say you love and all the things you want to accomplish and all the things that you say that you value, and then on another, on another column, you wrote a list of all the things that you're currently doing with your time, with your energy and with your money, do those things match up? And are the things that you're currently doing, are they feeding into the things that you say that you value? And if you can't get those to match up, then there's something wrong because this is never going to yield this. And so when I realized that, 
I was like, well, I really value travel. And so travel always came up through, you know, natural, uh, you know, collaboration reasons and whatnot, but it was still work, you know, it's still like, all right, you go to Tahiti, but you're there for like five days and you're working for like three and a half. So it's still work. And I wanted to get away. And another really big thing for me was getting away with my husband because it was always me leaving for travel, but it wasn't, it didn't feel the same way. So I decided, well, a big goal for me this year is going to be to travel often, about every two to three months, and to travel with my husband and not work-related. And if it's work-related, it needs to be like less than a quarter of the time, right? And so I decided that that was a non-negotiable for me. And once I set those pillars in place, I started building my business model and my business offerings around those things. So if I said, I'm going to travel every three months, so then I set, okay, what are the four months that I'm going to be traveling this year, and how am I going to use all the other initiatives to build a around those dates. And so that's kind of how I've built everything else around my life when it comes to food, when it comes to exercise, when it comes to quality time with my family. And so that's one thing I really want to encourage is doing that list and seeing how the things that you're actually doing, how they're feeding into the things that you say you truly value and the things that you actually are working towards. So yeah, I hope that's helpful. I guess if you guys have any other questions or we can, we can end it here and can you hang out for a while and, and, uh, all right, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a fork in this one. Uh, this was awesome. This is super awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much for oh, being so here. Honored. This was great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, and thank you guys for being here, too. I just got to say thank you one more time to everybody who has come with me uh, this far on the journey, checked out season one. Whether you, whether you listen to the entire season or, or just one episode or maybe this episode, thank you so much for your time. I know there's a ton of great podcasts out there, and uh, I appreciate you spending time with me here. Um, so we're going to take a, a, maybe about a month or so off, which isn't a lot of time. I'll be back with season two of Rust Belt Startup. And in the meantime, uh, I hope that you check out the newsletter. You can sign, it, sign up for it at rustbeltstartup.com. It's full of stuff that I'm reading, watching, and listening to. Uh, I do the curating so you don't have to. If you want to know what's cool out there, um, just follow, uh, follow the newsletter. You can get it for free. I send it once a month-ish. And uh, will not share your information. And then, you know, if you got uh, if you got some time, go check out the archived episodes. There's a lot of good stories out there from this season. And uh, if you're digging it, I, I I love feedback. Send me an email. Leave me the the rating or the review uh, on the on the podcast app of your choice. I'd really appreciate it. That stuff helps in the uh, in the search in the search there. And uh, we'll see you guys after the holidays. Have a great holiday. See you in 2019. Signing off.